it's crazy for me to think about the fact that Katie and I stood on this stage in 1999 and got married. Now, this carpet, this carpet right, right here was the same. The carpet right there was orange still. Yeah, remember the orange carpet? And the wall behind me was this fake rock. Um, so things have changed a little bit. But never in my wildest imagination would I have thought that 20-some years later, I would be back coming up these steps after I'd gone down them, pronounced man and wife, and then I would come back up here to preach on a somewhat routine basis. That just blows my mind. I wouldn't have wanted it if you would have told me in 1999 that that's where my life would go. Sometimes life as a way of throwing things at us that we would never expect. And those are blessings, right? But not always, right? Sometimes life has a way of throwing things at us that we would never expect in a very different way. In a way that we would do anything we could to get out of it. That's just reality. I mean, even the past few years of our own collective experience has been one where we never saw it coming. And we know that we cannot avoid that. This morning, as we continue on in our series, we're going to look at an example from the life of a woman who lived a long time ago, who was in the face of this reality that life had thrown her something that she could have never seen coming. And in a word, we could just summarize it as distress. She faced a distress that she would have never expected or anticipated. But in her, we see an example of faith worth imitating. And along the way, we see some character traits of God that we can trust. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel this morning, the opening page of 1 Samuel. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 129, I believe. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. Look in the table of contents. It's there too. But this woman faced a level of distress in her life, but the nation of Israel was experiencing its own level of distress. The end of the book of Judges says this. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or in her own eyes. This is the period that we're in. There's a lack of leadership in Israel. There's a lack of dedication to the Lord. There's a lack of devotion. But not with everybody. Let's jump into the passage now. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of this town, of the hill country of Ephraim, who had people in his heritage, and he had two wives. That's the part we really need to remember. These names are hard. They're strange. But what we see is that he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. The names are strange. When we hear that Elkanah has two wives, that's strange. We should just say that the Bible never commends polygamy. God's desire for marriage is that it would be between one man and one woman. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 24, this is what the text says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's a man and his wife. The two become one. 
So every time that we see that somebody has more than one wife, we know trouble's on the way. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar. You see other examples throughout, throughout Scripture. You see Jacob and the issues that he ran into with Rebecca and with Leah. And there's just problems all over the place. Sorry, I, I meant to say Rachel and Leah. But there's problems wherever we see polygamy. So we shouldn't expect to see anything different in our case this morning either. Let's keep reading. It says, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Let me just say some free marital advice to all of you guys. Don't ever use that line unless you want some hard truth. Don't ever do that. But what's going on here? Elkanah, this man, is an example of faithfulness as he goes up to Shiloh, the place of the temple. This was before Jerusalem was the place to worship God. And he travels to Shiloh where the temple is. And year after year, he brings his family. They offer sacrifices. And part of this is what's probably what's called a peace offering. They would offer a sacrifice to the Lord and then consume a part of that sacrifice around a meal, a meal of thankfulness together. And that would always become an occasion for great distress for Hannah. What we see is this meal would become a, an inescapable kind of routine for Hannah because Penina would constantly revile her. A woman's whole hope and ambition in this day was to have children. Childbearing was everything. Childbearing would be the thing that would allow you to continue on your family name. Children would inherit property. Children would take care of the parents as they aged. Children would contribute to working and earning income for the good of the family. And in all of those counts, Penina is exceeding. She's, she's succeeding. But Hannah, Hannah's failing in all of those accounts. And we can just imagine the fact that this kind of embarrassment is a powerful thing. This kind of shame is a powerful thing. And between the two of them, there's an intense rivalry because of it. We can imagine what Penina might be saying. Hannah, that's a lot of food that Elkanah gave to you. That double portion is so much. Well, that's enough to feed a whole family. Then again, you wouldn't know anything about a family, would you? Oh, come over, kids. Let's make room for Hannah so she has room to sit down with us. Oh, wait, she's not going to need much room because she's all by herself. Hannah, what is it like to be such 
a disappointment. These kind of remarks would just eat away at Hannah year after year after year. Does she look forward to going to Shiloh every year to sacrifice? No, this is a dreaded event on her calendar every single year. The first thing we see here is distress is something that we cannot escape. I think about all of the different stages of life that we might go through. I think of students in this room, whether you're a middle school student, a high school student, a college student, and all of the pressure there is today to try to fit in, to try to belong, to try to be accepted. Social media just compounds the difficulty of all of that. To say the right things and to do the right things, to be the right things. And there's distress whenever you're trying to achieve somebody else's approval. I think of the young adults who have this pressure in their own lives to try to stay on some schedule. That you should be graduated from college by a certain point. You should have a serious relationship or even be married by a certain point. You should have started your career by the time you reach a certain point. You should even be on your way to having a family at a certain point. And if you're off schedule from any of those things, there can be distress in your life. I think of the stage of life that I've been in recently, having a young family. There's all of the competing things on our calendar, the, the things that are going and spreading us apart as a family, but yet we're supposed to look so unified. We're supposed to make a chaotic situation look easy. The house should always be clean. Our car should always be clean. Our life should always be happy. And we look at the people around us who are in the same situation and we think, gosh, how do they do it so much better than we are? And then I think about those of you who are retired. You've worked all of your lives to achieve what the American dream wants us to achieve. And I just can't help but wonder that as you step away from a career, that sometimes you step away from your identity. You step away from a sense of purpose that can cause distress. And as you get into your later decades of life, you start to deal with the distress of a physical abilities that start to go away. You deal with the disappointment of losing loved ones. At every stage of our lives, there's the potential for distress. It's unavoidable. It's unescapable. And Hannah has it in her life as well. And what we see is that it's even for those who are faithful. Elkanah is going to offer these sacrifices. Hannah is going along with him to offer these sacrifices. It's not like if you'll only follow God, you can escape this distress in your life. And Hannah is all alone in what she faces. Elkanah, he tries to console her, but he's unable to even reach her in that place. And it's inevitable that she feels isolated. No one can say the right thing that will comfort her. There's no one that can reach her in that distress. And this is the point where distress becomes a test. Will we draw near to God or will we withdraw from God? This is the crux of the matter this morning as we look at this whole topic of distress. Will we draw near to God in the midst of our distress or will we withdraw from God in the midst of our distress? There's a critical comment that we've already read through but haven't given attention to in verses 5 and 6. There we read, 
that it's the Lord who had closed Hannah's womb. It's repeated here. She's provoked grievously by her rival, Penina, because the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord's care extends even into those areas of our life that cause us distress. The fact that Hannah was dealing with this great distress in her life did not mean that God had lost control of her life. And that's a truth for us this morning. That just because we have distress in our lives does not mean that God has lost control of our lives. We have to have that perspective. If we're going to pass that test, if we're going to draw near to God in the midst of these trials and struggles, we have to have this in our minds. That just because we have distress does not mean God has lost control of our lives. So what does Hannah do in the face of her distress? Let's keep reading. Because after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not, and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So we don't know if Hannah noticed that Eli was there witnessing what was going on. But as soon as the meal is over, we can imagine that she just couldn't wait for it to end. It couldn't get over quickly enough. She gets up from that place, and she makes her way out of the room and off over to where the temple is. And she's just pouring out her heart to the Lord. Lord, if you'll just look on me. But we see these words of just intense emotion when it says she's deeply distressed. She weeps bitterly. And what does she do in that place? She prays. Hannah goes before the Lord in prayer. She has nowhere else to turn. This is where distress can just turn into this place of, of just a disastrous view of life. We can get into this place where we're so overcome by emotion, we feel like we have no hope. And Hannah takes that to the Lord. Her words here just seem like maybe it's some beautiful way of expressing her, her great desire. But I think there's actually something going on here that's more calculated. The words here she uses are very intentional when she says, look on and remember me and do not forget. These are words that echo another time in Israel's past where they had cried out to the Lord in distress and the Lord had brought deliverance. We don't have it up on the screen here, but in Exodus 2, Israel is enslaved in Egypt. And it says this, that in that text, in that situation, that God had heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This response that Hannah has seems to be coming out of a deeper knowledge of God's ways and God's word. That the everyday habits that she had been a part of, of worship and of studying the scripture, were things that had helped her in this moment of distress. That the ordinary rhythms and routines of worship 
had been things that she could draw from in this moment of distress to call on the Lord in a way that would remind herself and remind the Lord of how he had acted in the past and to plead with him to act in that same way again. The Lord doesn't need to be reminded, but this word remember is the idea of, Lord, act in my behalf. You've done it in the past. I need you to show me that you're still present, that you're still active. I need you to do a new work in this day and at this time. Lord, show me that I haven't fallen off the map. Show me that you still care and are concerned and are watching over my life. Have you ever been in that place? It's a place where we know God's word is true. We know God has acted in remarkable ways, but we need him to do it again. This is what Hannah does as she cries out to the Lord to look on, to remember, and to not forget. And she knows, she knows that if any intervention is going to happen, it's going to have to be a miraculous work from God's hand. That's why she makes this vow where she says, Lord, if you will do this, if you will give me a son, I know that that is directly from you and I will give him back to you. I know that nothing that I have is actually my own, that everything that I receive is from you. So I will give him back to you. That's the level of desperation that Hannah is experiencing. What we see from Hannah in the midst of the distress is a deeper devotion. Let's keep reading. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered her, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor. And he said, She said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So she continues pouring out her soul before the Lord. We don't know everything that Hannah said, but we know that she continued to speak to the Lord through prayer. And in that place, Eli completely misses what's actually going on. This is the the leader of Israel in a spiritual sense, and he cannot discern the difference between someone who is drunk and someone who's crying out to the Lord. And when Hannah says, do not consider your servant a worthless person, that's a word that comes into play later on because Eli's sons, who were referenced earlier in this text, will be called worthless people right after this passage. This is a reversal of sorts where we see the condition of Israel being such that there is no spiritual leadership. There's no kind of authority, but Hannah is crying out in the midst of that situation in a way that is a model of faithfulness. She cries out. She asks the Lord to intervene. She's pouring out her soul rather than pouring out wine. And then we see this remarkable verse at the end of this section where she says, she went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. 
What has changed in Hannah's circumstances at this point? She still has a rival. She still has Penina in her life who does not like her, who does not want her to even be around. Penina is jealous of her because she has, she has Elkanah's love. She is not pregnant. She does not have a child yet. But yet, her disposition has completely shifted. We can imagine that her eyes might still be bloodshot and puffy, but yet they reveal a new confidence, a new assurance. And her appetite returns before she hadn't even eaten. She'd just gotten up after the meal and left because she was so sick in her stomach, just nauseous from the situation maybe. And here though, her appetite has returned and her face is no longer sad. The only thing that can explain this kind of work is what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He says there, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And let's read verse 7 together. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This surpasses or transcends all understanding. It does not make sense that suddenly, suddenly Hannah, rather, in the midst of a situation where her circumstances are still the same, would suddenly have a total change in outlook and perspective. This is the power of prayer. This is the power of what it looks like when in the midst of our distress, instead of withdrawing from God, we draw near to Him. When we express an even greater devotion in the midst of that distress, this is the result of what can happen in our lives. That God meets us there and gives us something that we can't even express. We can't explain it other than it's a miraculous work of God. It's an invisible work, perhaps, but it's something that other people can see expressed in the way that we live our lives. This is what I want in my life when I am in distress. And this is what I want for us when we are in the midst of our distress together. That we would all have this kind of, of experience where we take it before the Lord as a greater act of devotion and we see what only He can do in our lives. The text says that they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Let me just pause right here and say, the Lord does not always respond this way, does He? Maybe some of you in this room have been in a similar situation of infertility. You prayed, you poured your heart out to the Lord, and you haven't had this kind of result that Hannah sees here. We're going to see how the Lord is responding this way to Hannah because it lines up with His purposes. But we don't always understand exactly why the Lord responds one way and then another in a different person's life. My prayer is that regardless of what has happened in your own life, that you would know His peace that you would know that the Lord is present with you, that He loves you. You would know His peace, even in the midst of a situation that might be unexplainable to you.
what we see going on here is that the Lord remembers Hannah. The Lord remembers her. Again, we've already said that it's not that He had forgotten Hannah, but He acts on her behalf in this situation and provides a son and calls him Samuel. Samuel is a word that sounds like the Hebrew word for to ask, the verb to ask. And she just names him in this way because it's a constant reminder and it's a constant testimony to the fact that this is the child who Hannah had asked for from the Lord. As we keep reading on, we see that as this child is born, Hannah raises the child and weans him. Elkanah continues to return to the temple in Shiloh with his family year after year after year, but Hannah stays back with young Samuel to raise him. But then we get to the moment where Samuel is old enough to be taken to the temple and to have the vow fulfilled. He's probably only about three years old at this point. Let's pick up what it says there. So she approaches Eli and she says, Oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed and the Lord had granted me my, my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. This word lent is another way of saying, I consider him the one the Lord has asked for. I consider him the one the Lord has asked for. His name is Samuel. You didn't even know what I was praying for at that time. But this is it, and this is the boy, and this is the way God has brought deliverance. This is the way God has answered my own petition in the midst of my distress. This is a picture of a devoted woman in the midst of distress, and that is the example worth imitating. This boy who comes out of nowhere Elkanah, we saw at the very start that he has this lineage that has been recorded. But it's not like he's from this line of people that just stands out from everyone else in Israel. Elkanah seems like a pretty average guy. And Hannah, she has no status because she has no children. But now we see how the Lord has lifted up somebody who had nothing before and has done an extraordinary work. Because in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. But this boy Samuel, he would become the person who God would use to help rid Israel of idolatry. He would be the one who God would use to help establish the monarchy so there would be leadership and authority and guidance and direction within Israel. Now, of course, we all know the story that it's temporary. But Samuel's work would even become something that would prepare the way not only for the, for the king of kings, or for the son, for, excuse me, for David, but for the son of David. Samuel would prepare the way for the Messiah. We see that actually in the next chapter, in chapter 2, where Hannah is pouring out her heart and praying once again, this time celebrating what God has done in the lives of His people. And as Hannah prays there, we see that she lifts up the name of the Lord. And all the way down in verse 10, 
She says that the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is a foreshadowing of the work of the Messiah. That word anointed is the word Messiah. That this boy Samuel would be one who would be used by God to help establish the pathway that would lead to Jesus. What an incredible picture of God's faithfulness in the midst of this average, ordinary woman who displays an incredible devotion to the Lord in the midst of her distress. It's only fitting this morning that we get to come before the Lord's table to celebrate the work that would lead to this Messiah, to celebrate the Messiah's work on our behalf. Samuel was a boy who, in a sense, brought a kind of salvation to Israel, to God's people. But then he would be used in turn to bring an even greater salvation to all of the world, to us in this room this morning. There would be another person who, almost a thousand years later, would also be at a meal full of distress. And he too would rise from that meal and get up and go out and cry out to the Lord. This is the one who we remember as he has remembered us. We're going to take a moment and just prepare our hearts for worship. And this way, as we come before the Lord's table, if you're helping with communion, I'd ask you to come forward now. We're going to pass the elements. And as we do that, you just take the bread as it comes by. And hold on to it, and then we'll take it together. Parents, we just trust that you can decide for yourselves whether your kids should participate in this way. But let's take a minute now to prepare our hearts to come around the table and to celebrate the work of the Lord as we remember His death.